This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. The marvelous reminder of Psalm 118, verse 24. And this evening has been a great blessing that we've each been granted, that we could assemble yet a second time for many of us on this Lord's Day, the first day of the week, and to do so with a desire and with the character of improvement and edification of ourselves. Certainly, as we are gathered, we're thankful that God has allowed us to do so, and we're hopeful that the things that we do will certainly magnify and exalt His great and master's name. As you know, our series in the book of Job has certainly been ongoing now for some time, and tonight is the 11th lesson in that series, and in fact, it's also the final lesson in that series. As we do so, we come to the 42nd and final chapter in that Old Testament book of Job, one of the books of poetry found there in the Old Testament. As we do so tonight, beginning this lesson, we shall in fact use it in a way that characterizes not only the journey through which we've taken through the book, but also to close the book or somewhat summarize some of the things we've seen in this study of this grand book of Job. As the book began, the opening two chapters really did set a powerful stage for all that would follow. Because in them, we first of all learned about the wealth initially that Job enjoyed, the ease with which his life was described, but then things took a terrible turn, at least from an earthly perspective. There was a discussion between God and Satan. As a result of that, all the things that Satan was allowed to take from him, except his life itself, were taken. In the chapters that followed, Job and his friends had discussion. They often were quick to accuse Job that in fact there had to have been the excuse or the reason for sin behind it. Job, however, defended his position, but he did not understand. I think many of us also can well appreciate Job's predicament. We don't always understand everything we'd like to understand either. However, we did notice after the cycle of speeches in chapter 37 ended that God now spoke, and God proceeded to ask many questions of Job. Job couldn't answer them then, and today you and I still are not able to answer nearly all of them. But isn't it amazing that all the while God's point to Job was well learned? That brought us to his discussion that we noted last week. Even dinosaurs were mentioned here, these marvelous and great creatures of days gone by. It is the case then that one chapter remains, the 42nd chapter of the book of Job. Would you turn there with me tonight as we not only look at some of the features of that chapter, but also, again, use it to summarize much of what we've seen throughout the book of Job and also what lessons might be ours for the taking, that we might use them and day by day perhaps be better equipped to suffer even when it comes to be your situation in life and mine. It is for those reasons that let's then turn to chapter 42 for now. And as the chapter opens, the first, <clears throat> excuse me, the first six verses... In fact, read as follows. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. We can immediately appreciate something interesting, can't we? 
after that series of questions in which God rather directly and very to the point asked Job all these questions that he wasn't able to answer. Isn't it amazing that Job's reply was one of humble submission? Did you note with me how Job replied unto God? First in verses 2 and 3, he upheld God's sovereignty. He upheld God's greatness and he quickly stated, I now know that no thought can be withholden from thee. God, you can do anything that is in harmony with your will. And Job now was not in any position to argue any longer. In verses 4, 5, and 6, you'll notice carefully that Job even repented. He now appreciated that some of the thoughts that crossed his mind and some of the words that emanated from his lips were now regarded as improper. He had gone too far in questioning God. And as such, he now made repentance of that in verse 6. Beginning in verse number 7, we have God now again speaking. God says, And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. God now directly says that those friends, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, had not spoken the thing that was right. And thus God said they needed to go to Job and offer particular sacrifices and beseech Job to pray for them. That sounds like a marvelous consideration of that very activity that so often you and I consider in the New Testament. As when, for instance, Simon the sorcerer petitioned Peter to pray on his behalf to God in Acts 8 verses 20 to 25. Isn't it interesting too beyond that? Verse 9 says... So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad and the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did according as the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. That period of difficulty through which Job had now passed is such that we now notice after emerging victorious... And after emerging from it the way that he did, we now notice that God again blesses Job mightily. Verse number 10 again says, Twice as much Job now had in comparison to what he had before. The details are in verse 11 and following. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money, and every one an earring of gold. Fantastic, isn't it, that these acquaintances of Job, these individuals, his physical brothers and sisters, who had shunned him when things were so bad, Job even lamented twice in the book, as we noted in our study, that his family would have nothing to do with him. They had, in fact, driven themselves from him because they perceived that no longer was Job a person with whom to associate. 
But now their mind has changed. They come back. They again are interested in maintaining association with him. Verse number 12. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 she-asses. If you compare those numbers with those in the first three verses of the book, you find that exactly the numbers have been doubled. God, in fact, did exactly that which He had there stated. He blessed the latter end double compared to the beginning. Isn't it amazing to see the blessing of God foreshadowed and set forth in that regard and in that way? Furthermore, verse number 13, He had also seven sons and three daughters. And He called the name of the first Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapak. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this lived Job an hundred and forty years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. We noted earlier that Job had prayed for those friends. And it brings us to some closing remarks about at least this chapter. And I've tried to write them in that fashion and in that way. Some of those matters we had described, again, challenge us to appreciate the way in which God so bountifully and so mightily showered blessings upon Job. The section of this chapter that has occasioned no small amount of discussion is the part about Job's children. We remember that in chapter 1, those sons and daughters there were killed when the house collapsed upon them. But now we notice in chapter, chapter 42, verses 12 and 13, that now Job again has children again. In what way did God bring that about? Well, it could well be that Job's wife and he had more children. It could also be that his first wife died and Job remarried and maybe these children are from the second wife. We don't know and the chapter doesn't say. But we do know that Job was again bountifully blessed with these sons and daughters. And in fact, the daughters' names are given, three of them. As you look at their names in verses 14 and 15, we notice that their names in fact are the things that I've listed on the screen. Job appears to have named them very interestingly. The first one, that word literally in Hebrew means day by day. It seems as if perhaps she was named in such a way that would be a continual and constant reminder to Job to take it a day at a time and to be faithful a day at a time and to enjoy God's blessings a day at a time. The second one's name is really the Greek, the Hebrew word cassia, And it is really a fragrance, a kind of spice, if you please. We notice that, in fact, she apparently was someone for whom Job was very thankful and she was named in a very precious and corresponding way. Finally, the last one means horn of antimony. Now, that one's a bit more unusual, isn't it? You also notice that antimony is a very special metallic substance. Could it simply mean, again, the great preciousness that Job felt for his children? If that be the case, we notice the chapter rapidly comes to its conclusion. And Job lived for many years, in fact, 140 years after the calamity and the events of it. And we notice it simply says in verse 17 that Job died, being old and full of days. 
And with that, the curtain closes on the book of Job. But with it, what great lessons we've seen along the way. And, and how many more great truths might be mined from it. But at least for the moment, let's conclude our lesson in the series by at least briefly summarizing a few of the things that we've seen. I submit that much of this will be matters that we have at least touched on at one point or another in the series, but one final reminder would not do us any harm, I, I suppose. Perhaps first, the presumptions found in this book. First of all, it seems evident that Job's friends, and in fact even Job's wife apparently, his first wife at least, were very much under the presumption that difficulties, afflictions, and oppressions in life directly follow sin and evil. That was the method by which they operated, and it was the conclusion that they were simply convinced of. Job's friends never really thought it any other way. They simply thought that the reason for Job's difficulties was because Job was a sinner. And in fact, apparently a great sinner because of the greatness of his difficulties. One of the first presumptions then would be that one, but it must also be the first one that we set aside. In John 9, verses 2 and 3, the Son of God Himself, while tabernacling in the flesh, He was asked about this matter. You might recall that when the man born blind, when the discussion of that case was brought before Jesus, the very first question the disciples asked was this, concerning that man, who did sin, this man or his parents? Again, they were under the impression that due to the fact this man was blind, which in their view was simply undesirable, that there had to be a cause for it, and it had to be seen either on his part or his parents. Jesus was quick to say in verse 3, neither one of them. He laid to rest completely that presumption for that was not a correct statement. And similarly, the same thing is recognized as correct today. Just because someone endures afflictions or some family undergoes tragedy doesn't mean necessarily that they have been guilty of great sin. It might well be that you and I have known an individual or a family for whom, as far as we know, they were the most faithful individuals in the community. And yet they still sometimes are called upon to suffer, called upon to face problems and difficulties of great nature. As we look a bit later in the lesson tonight, we shall revisit that from a slightly different perspective. But for now, notice with me yet another presumption. Job in this book did not claim to be perfect. He did not claim to be sinlessly perfect. But on those occasions when we analyzed his responses, he was confused because he did not think that the things that he was suffering was a right and proper amount. In other words, to state it in the way that I have there, he felt as if his suffering was disproportionately great compared to the sin and the problems and the other issues that were characteristic of his way. That led him more than once to question God and to desire to dialogue with Him. He wanted to talk to God and he wanted some answers. By the way, in that, the very matter that we discussed in chapters 41 and 42, not only tonight, but last week as well. But as we return to that in a moment, the second lesson, God is always right. In the aftermath, again, Job was confused, and he wanted to talk with God. 
But in the final analysis, in chapters 40, 41, and 42, Job said, I have spoken things that were not appropriate. I have questioned when that was not right. And now that I see the greatness of God, and now that I appreciate all that He is, I know that I was in error. That points us back to this lesson. Under no circumstances, matters not what they may be, under no circumstances ought we to question or to reach the point of arguing with God. Such is not our place. We are the creature, He is the Creator. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The famous question of Genesis 18.25. And in fact, other passages that also challenge us along that line and on that point might well be this one. In Hosea 14.9. The closing verse to that first of the minor prophets. What well, on that occasion, if we take a very, very brief journey through the book, the children of Israel, those to whom the book of Hosea was written, they had, of course, engaged in sinful activity, not the least of which was idolatry. And yet through the book, God, through the prophet Hosea, urged them, reminded them, and challenged them to come back to God. Leave the idols behind, leave the sinfulness behind, and return to the Lord. In fact, that's the very wording of Hosea 6, verses 1 and 2. In chapter 7, we see Israel described as a half-baked cake. Did you notice with me the interesting discussion of that? Some think Hosea was a chef, a baker, because of a statement like that. But whether he was or whether he wasn't, Israel is a half-baked cake. Raw on one side and burned on the other. Not fit for the utility and usefulness in the kingdom of God. You need to return to the Lord, purge sin from the camp, and therefore you would be right and able to be a powerful instrument for good. With all that in mind, look at how that book then closes in verse 9 of Hosea 14. "'Who is wise, and he shall understand these things? Prudent, and he shall know them, for the ways of the Lord are right.'" And the just shall walk in them, but the transgressor shall fall therein. One final time in that book, God says, The just are the wise ones who recognize that the ways of God are right. And they always have been and they always will be. Job learned that lesson, didn't he? Perhaps that leads me to the final comment. Weren't Job's admissions so very telling? There again in chapter 42, verses 4 to 6, he admitted, I abhor that which I have spoken. He then knew that what he had had as questions were inappropriate. Today, perhaps you and I from time to time make mistakes of reaching the point of questioning God, perhaps doubting Him, perhaps even raising a fist of anger to Him. Our God is a loving God who has created and orchestrated this universe and furthermore He has a home in heaven waiting the faithful. He hasn't been bad to us. So good has He been that He loved us to the point He sent His Son to die for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. A mean God, a tyrant as God would have never sent His Son he would have thumbed his nose and said, Well, you can die and go to hell then. But he loved us despite the fact of our sin because he wants us to be with him forever. 
The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, for not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Is it not stated in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, God would have all men to be saved and to come into a knowledge of the truth? For those reasons, this has been a gigantic lesson that we have been able to study and to consider in this book of Job. But perhaps the thing for which the book of Job is most well known is the very discussion that it does make possible of the matter you and I call suffering. We each know it well, and we certainly don't need any lecture to the fact that this life is not a bed of roses in so many cases. There are times that if you live long enough, you're going to suffer. That's just the way it is. It may be health problems. It may be the loss unexpectedly of a loved one. It may well be catastrophe at the office. You may lose your job and everything that goes with it. None of us know how that's going to happen, and we may face all of it. We know that our sojourn here in this flesh is often beset with difficulties, perhaps in large numbers. It is in times like that, maybe, that the book of Job can render its greatest assistance to us. What might be some thoughts about suffering that we've learned in the book and that might assist us as we're better equipped to face it ourselves? First of all, this one takes us back to a comment made a few moments ago. Evil does not immediately always follow and produce suffering. I suppose sometimes you and I might prefer it that way. We might wish that God would immediately bring hurt and harm and evil on somebody who had chosen to do that which was wrong, that they would suffer almost immediately for it. And it's true that sometimes suffering does seem to quickly follow evil. That person who drinks and then drives might kill someone not too long after the drinking started. Well, we notice the loss that that family endures and the difficulties and problems, sure, that brings hurt and it brings a lot of heartache and harm. But notice it isn't always that way. Sometimes the wicked prosper, don't they? Sometimes the wicked seemingly are the ones that are the best off in this world. They often have the best paying jobs. They often drive the best cars. They have the best bank accounts. Sometimes the wicked do prosper. David said as much, didn't he, in Psalm 73, verses 3 and 12. And in fact, on that occasion, even David wondered, Why? Why do the wicked prosper this way? Later in the chapter, he answered his own question. After he had entered into the sanctuary, for after he appreciated the truth of God, and after he knew that their actual standing in terms of the fact that they were undone and unrighteous, and lost in God's sight, God, David then said, I understand. Maybe that point for us at this point would be this one. Evil doesn't always immediately bring suffering. But that does lead to this point. There are times when a person can suffer due to the choices of somebody else. Sometimes that one's a difficult one to bear, isn't it? Someone else has made a poor decision. Someone else has chosen to act sinfully. But as a result of that, I'm the one suffering. The example I mentioned a moment ago about the drunkard, the person who has imbibed alcoholic beverages, gotten into a car, and then killed somebody innocent. 
Here's a family suffering for what that person has done. We do notice that sin oftentimes sets in course a chain of events that may impact others. That's the way sin is though, isn't it? We lie down in our shame and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Jeremiah 3.25 Did not that same writer say in Lamentations 5 verse 7, Our fathers have sinned and are not, and we have borne their iniquities. There was an inspired writer who said, What they have done, we have suffered the consequences of it. That certainly, among other things, reminds each of us as parents that when we act so foolishly, our children may be called upon to suffer consequences for the bad decisions we make. We need to live cautiously, wisely, and always in direction toward the things that are noble and godly. Maybe a third point. Suffering, as we learn in this book, actually resulted from God's permission to uphold the grandeur and greatness of pure religion. Job, you see, was one who God initially mentioned, look at my servant Job, and it was Satan who said, he only serves you because you've hedged him in, because you've been so good to him. It was God who at that point allowed Satan to, to test him in the way that he did. It might thus be, it would seem, that in life it could be that suffering could be permissively allowed by God on those who are the righteous with a testament to the greatness of religion and the greatness of relying upon God. If that be true, may God always be hailed as great and may He always be hailed as sovereign. And in the final analysis, Job recognized that that was the thing that had happened in his case. As you look at that lesson, perhaps another one. Suffering does tend to draw one's attention to God, doesn't it? Among other things, suffering highlights the fact that in this flesh, we are rather helpless. In this flesh, we are rather hopeless in many ways. It does help us see that there is one greater than we, and there is one more righteous, more noble, and far higher than we. There's a song that we often sing, or at least used to sing, quite a bit. There's a rock that's higher than I. That's taken out of one of the Psalms. It's directly a reminder that there is a strong rock of strength that's far greater, far more noble, and far sturdier than you and I. Suffering, when we endure it, does call upon us to recognize that there is a God in heaven. And He is there for encouragement, support, and help to succor us in the words of Hebrews 2.18. That thought prompts us to think about another one. Suffering does acutely remind us of the need for prayer and the fact that we are not God. I suppose in those better moments, we begin to feel strong and mighty. And if we're not careful, we can begin in those good times, maybe even a series of good years, we can forget about God. Look at what I have done. Look at what I've been able to accomplish. My health is good. My job is good. My family is good. Everything is in order. I don't think I really need to go to church services this morning. And it doesn't take very long after that kind of thinking that a person finds himself far removed from faithfulness. Somewhat like the prodigal son, isn't it? Who had everything while he was in dad's house. But when he went out on his own, he lost everything just as quickly as he'd gotten it. 
when you and I began to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, the error of Romans 12 verse 3, we shall find ourselves also far removed. And then when we need to call upon God, it'll be hard to find Him because we've distanced ourselves too far from Him. No wonder we always need to stay near to His side for He will always be there to buoy us up and provide us with what we need in this life no matter what it is that we may be called upon to face. Maybe in the next account, suffering, doesn't it remind us in so many ways of what things are really valuable and what things are really of great worth. When we lose our health, perhaps, it's then we suddenly realize what a great blessing that health was. When maybe some other tragedy occurs to a member of the family, we then acutely realize, maybe better than ever before, just why special that situation was or what that person meant to us. It is amazing then that suffering can perhaps teach us some things, but it can definitely be a difficult teacher, isn't it? Beyond that, there are some more thoughts about suffering that seemingly also come directly from this book. It can help to teach us compassion because once we've been through it, we then are able to reach out to those who are enduring the thing that we have because we know and we understand what it is they're facing. Sometimes that element of compassion challenges us that in this world, in the church, brotherly love is to reign supreme, isn't it? And love is not to be, of course, that which is hypocritical. Romans 12, verses 7 through 10. Suffering also helps prepare those that are wise, at least, for the eternity that's beyond. We do know from a book like Job and many other verses in the Bible that our sojourn in this flesh is temporary. And in the analysis and comparison to eternity, it's awfully brief. When we suffer, it helps us to appreciate the fact, at least again if we're wise, that this world is not our home. That we're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, Hebrews eleven sixteen, And we're looking for a place whose foundations are solid and sturdy and a place in which there will be none of this suffering. Revelation 21, 4 still says there is a place where there's no tears, no sorrow, no curse, and no death. And surely after enduring that here, we long and yearn for a place in which none of that's going to be present. Suffering, you see, helps teach us that, at least if we're grounded. Now those who aren't wise perhaps don't learn much of a lesson from suffering, but those of us that are, we know that while we're in this flesh, we are in a circumstance in which suffering shall be our lot, but that we look for an occasion and a day in which that will not be the case. Maybe another lesson is this one. For the faithful, isn't it true that suffering here will give way to blessing and bliss beyond? I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. Paul's the one that wrote that. And Paul, of course, suffered many things at the hands of individuals on earth. Everything from being beaten to shipwreck, perils among great difficulties. Paul endured all of it, and yet he nonetheless could write in that place, Romans 8, 18, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time simply are not to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to those that are faithful. If we believe that, 
it gives us an interesting power of internal assurance and reliability whereby we can endure difficulties here. For we know what lies ahead. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17, on that occasion in a very similar passage, Paul also stated that though the outward man decay, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. There's a renewal of strength internally to those that are the righteous, to those that turn time and again to the Word of God for encouragement. Isn't it amazing that another lesson from that is perhaps also what we've seen in this book. Suffering is a part of life in this flesh, isn't it? We may have doctors who can help us and to, who, who assist us, and there may be other kinds of professionals there to assist and help, but they will not eliminate it. This life is beset with these kind of difficulties, isn't it? And it would seem that it emanated from Genesis chapter 3. For Adam and Eve, for all the appearances, never endured these things prior to their choice to sin in Genesis chapter 3. But once the curse came upon earth and the difficulties that surrounded it, Suffering has been the lot ever since. And may we be so quick to say, but the devil surely will help ensure that suffering will be our lot. Because after all, he isn't interested in the faithful being strong. And he isn't interested in the faithful being mighty and influential. He wants to crush the spirit of the faithful. And he wants to, in fact, remove as many from the church as he can. Because the church, you see, is where those that are saved are found. Ephesians 5.23 For that reason, may we never forget the fact that in this book, we learn that suffering came Job's way, and it was great suffering. It may be in light of all of that, that these principles that we've seen challenge us and encourage us to be strong. Didn't the psalmist say, and this passage has been a helpful one to so many, but didn't he say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those are the words of Psalm 23, verses 4 through 6. With all that said, the series on Job has come to its end. I hope that these 11 lessons have been helpful and encouraging to us as we've looked anew at this book of poetry in the Old Testament. And as we've looked at it, the lessons have been mighty. The book has been inspired. The thoughts have been challenging. But all the while, the practical usage has been evident. For you see, we all suffer perhaps in a way at least similar at times to Job, and we may wonder why. But in this book, we've learned don't ever question God and use it as a source of recognition and rely upon the faithfulness to be found in the, in the better moments of Job's life. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, Job thirteen fifteen. At this point, as we each analyze ourselves, whether we be in the faith, to quote 2 Corinthians 13, 5, this would be a perfect time for one or more in the audience to render faithful obedience in a public way to the Master if that's the need in your life. If you are faithful, then continue that walk with the Lord and do so even until the realms of death. Revelation 2 verse 10. But if you are not faithful, 
Perhaps there are two, one of two reasons. Either you've never become a member of the body of Christ initially. To this point, you have rejected completely the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. Don't continue in that state. For after all, when those difficulties in life come, don't you want the Savior at your side? And don't you want the element of character and faithfulness that He affords? If we could be of help to you tonight to become a Christian, the gospel plan of salvation belongs to the Lord and not to me. In it, He demands you believe Him to be the Son of God. John 8, verses 21 to 24. Repent of the sins in your life, for they, in essence, are what drove the nails in our Savior's hand. Your sins... Upon that repentance, Luke 13, 5, confess the great name of Jesus as a Son of God. That confession required in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And then be baptized for the remission of your sins, commanded in Mark 16, 16. If you have begun that walk with the Master, and you've tasted the good Word of God, Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6, but you have allowed Satan to come between you and your Lord, and you've begun to forget some of the lessons perhaps in the book of Job. Why not come back to your first love tonight? Come back to the one who died for you and again take up your rightful place at his, at, his, at his side. If tonight we could be of help in praying on your behalf for rededication and strength, we would only ask you let us know in that way we could do so and that you do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.